apparel and footwear companies are doing a better job of preventing the exploitation of factory workers, but it's not good enough. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Know the Chain, which tracks labor abuses in the supply chain, has released its second benchmark report on the record of major apparel and footwear companies. In the two and a half years since the last one, the companies under review have made what the organization calls significant improvements. But when the average score is just 37 out of 100 points, you have to conclude that they've got a long ways to go. Today, we'll discuss the findings of the latest report with Killian Moot, project director at Know the Chain. He'll fill us in on progress made since the 2016 survey, explain why it expands the number of companies covered, and drill down to where the biggest concerns still are. The report also provides examples of good practices and recommendations for companies that want to be on the right side of this critical issue. But how much do shareholders and consumers care? Here is my conversation with Killian Moot. Killian Moot, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bob, for having me. It's been two and a half years since we last spoke back in 2016 when you issued your previous report on apparel and footwear as well as other industry verticals as well. But for purposes of today's discussion, apparel and footwear, I'm interested in the differences between that study and this one. First of all, it looks like you surveyed a lot more companies this time around. Is that the case? Yeah. So this year we surveyed 43 companies up from 20 the previous year. There's been a lot of demand for our information and data. And so we wanted to expand out going down market cap to cover smaller companies. We also modified to capture more luxury good companies as well. We felt there was a real opportunity there to engage that sector around some of their specific risks. How about the benchmarks themselves, the way that you rated companies and the thematic areas that you looked at? Are they any different from what they were two years ago? So we did strengthen our methodology. We took out some indicators that we previously had that were really around awareness and looked to fine-tune and, and incorporate different elements into the methodology that we didn't have previously. So for example, within our remedy framework, we looked specifically for allegations that might have been out in the public or might have been known. And we incorporated that in specifically to say, if there was an allegation, how did the company respond to the allegation? We didn't want to penalize the company for an issue that might be in the news because we really want to address the problem. So if a company had an issue, we evaluated to see how did they respond to it and did they remedy the abuse to the aggrieved stakeholders' needs. So overall, and I'm wondering if this is the same as before, how do you get your information? You just mentioned that you read reports in the press and the like. I imagine you're also asking for self-reporting on the part of the companies. Just generally, what is the whole broad universe of ways in which you access this information that you need? Yeah, so there's three different channels of data that we're looking at. The first set is reported information by the companies. So that's either information that they currently have available or they're also provided an opportunity to disclose more data to us in the engagement process. So during our research cycle, the company has about two months to disclose more data to us in terms of what they're doing to address these issues. We did, as I mentioned, take in third-party allegation data. So that would be 
data from reputable news sources or frontline organizations that can say this specific company has had an allegation. We look to verify that information and then took that into consideration into our evaluation. And the third piece of data is we went to uh, accredited known third-party entities that are multi-stakeholder initiatives. So one example of that for apparel would be the Fair Labor Association. They work on the behalf of companies. And so if there was an understanding that the Fair Labor Association was working on behalf of one of the companies we evaluated, we would take in information that the FLA, the Fair Labor Association, would make available to us. So it's still all primarily publicly reported data, but we did start looking at examples of implementation. So we're not just looking at policy statements or broad commitments. We wanted to see if a company was able to give us multiple examples of in ways in which a specific policy or process has been effectively implemented. Average score 37 out of 100. I can't say that I find the results of this latest report very encouraging. How do you feel about it? There's some cause for optimism. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges in the sector, and we need to see progress uh, at a much greater degree. A few things to, to highlight. What we saw, which was very promising, is that every company that we evaluated in 2016 improved in 2018. So while their score might have decreased or stayed the same, that is due to the strength of the methodology. We did see overall a degree of higher engagement from those 2016 cohort in 2018. And the overall average score going down, part of that reason is for the strengthening, but it also is because we brought it out to a greater cohort, which are smaller cap companies that might not be as familiar with this issue. So I do think that the sector is going the right direction. I think there's a lot of opportunity and need for improvement. Where we kind of see the biggest gap is around the issue of recruitment. And recruitment is a significant issue for a lot of these companies and it potentially will continue to increase as more and more migrants are entering into the workforce for these companies. For example, in Jordan, 70% of the apparel workforce are migrants, and in Mauritius, 44% of the apparel workforce are migrants. And those are two regions that are seeing a growth in demand. And so as companies are expanding, they need to really take into consideration how these migrants are arriving in the workplace and what might be the conditions in which they were actually recruited. Recruitment average score 18 out of 100. That was the worst of all the categories, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And so we're really hopeful that between now and when we do this again in a few years, we'll see tremendous amount of uptake there. There's certain basic things that companies can do, which is embrace what's known as their the employer pays principle, which is essentially stating that you as a company think that no worker should have to pay for a job today. And that's a pretty standard policy, and, and it's being adopted by the leading companies, and it's something that can easily be adopted by any company that essentially says, we're not going to charge workers, or we're going to make sure that workers are not charged to actually get a job. And the reason why that's important is we're talking about low-skilled, low-wage jobs, and if a worker has to pay a recruiter to get the job, they then are likely in a situation of debt, which might lead to actual bondage or exploitation. But recruitment fees, uh, passports being withheld, this still seems to be a wide practice throughout the world, not just in apparel and footwear, but in any type of immigrant or emigre type labor situation, does it not? Yes, it is. And there is a growing awareness that these practices are fundamental to the rights of workers. And there's other restrictions that exist that might be harder to decouple, freedom association and others, 
based on where companies are operating, but access to your passport or legal documentation, not having to pay for work. These are fundamental elements that any company, no matter where you're operating or sourcing from, should be a champion to ensure that they're occurring because they can lead to more egregious labor abuses. Now, I'm trying to see the world through your glass half full uh, vision here. Uh, Again, a little bit difficult on an apples to apples comparison. You say companies have improved, but the number of companies is larger, so the ranking makes it difficult. Like, for instance, uh, Prada rates 36th out of 43 in this study. Two years ago, Prada was extremely low. It was, I think, what, 17th out of 20. Hard to compare those two because it's against this larger field this year, and yet you're saying that even though a company like that remains almost at the bottom because your standards have raised, it actually has improved? Yeah, so... Prada is a really good example of a company that we've seen some progress in dialogue. Of all the sectors or subsectors within our benchmark, we think that the one that has the greatest opportunity for improvement or, or the greatest opportunity for progress is the luxury goods sector. There is an understanding within companies in that sector, not all, but some. We saw some really strong progress from Kering, for example, and Hugo Boss as well, that have really been out front taking stands on these issues. But that the general sense is that forced labor risks don't exist for the sector. I and mean, there's kind of a lack of an acknowledgement that as luxury brands are expanding their production, they're expanding out of what they've traditionally produced into higher risk regions. And that's a sensitive conversation to have just from a standpoint of the marketing of the product, let alone the labor condition. The other thing that's really important for this sector to wrap its mind around is that we're not just talking about final stage production. We're also talking about inputs and raw materials. So where did that leather good come from? Where did the cotton come from? Those are questions that we think are fundamental for these companies to be asking. They've invested a lot of energy and time into thinking about their environmental footprint, about the conditions of the animals. Now is the time in 2018 to also consider about the conditions of the people. At the risk of sounding naive, it almost seems like too much of an irony to bear that the most expensive goods could not afford to treat their workers all the way down the supply chain better than the cheapest goods. And yet, in some cases, that continues to be the case, does it not? It is an interesting parallel. Some of it has to do with the labor intensity of the actual stitching at the final stage uh, and the quality of the actual materials themselves. We fundamentally think that there is a need uh, to increase awareness. And like I said, one of our notable progressors, even though there's still a lot of room for improvement, would be Kering, who 2016 wasn't fully aware or had yet acknowledged that the risks within their supply chain uh, that pertains to forced labor. And we really saw a cultural shift in engagement there within that company. And I think that speaks to the real need for other in that sector to begin acknowledging and embracing the fact that they have a responsibility to protect the workers all the way down their supply chain. And by the way, we're very specifically talking here about forced labor, are we? For instance, do you ever get into the area of child labor or is that a completely different subject? There's a lot of parallels in terms of working conditions, why an individual that is a child might be in a situation of work that's in violation of their rights or their well-being. But we specifically are looking at policies and practices that pertain to forced labor. We don't want to conflate the two, but we do feel that if a corporation is able to ensure that the most egregious forms of labor conditions are not occurring, that they'll be better equipped and positioned to then start addressing some of those other less severe labor abuses like child labor or excessive overtime. So we think fundamentally, if you're a corporation today, you need to build a strong program to address forced labor. And by act of doing that, then you'll have a better sense of how to generally improve the working conditions. 
What lessons can we learn from the leaders? Automatic best practices emerge simply by looking at what a company like Adidas is doing in order to rate so highly in two reports in a row. So what are some of those things that the best companies are doing that other companies should look at? Yeah, one of the things that jumps out to us overall is that there is no strong correlation between market cap, so size, and ability to perform high. So Lululemon, Adidas, relatively speking, smaller market cap, and yet they outperform the majority of the other companies. So it's something that we think is an interesting finding. Specifically from Adidas, the steps that they've taken, most notably to me, are down their supply chain to really map inputs, sub-suppliers, is strongly notable for this sector because some of the most egregious issues, it's not occurring at the final stage, but the inputs and the raw materials. One challenge has been for the sector to be more transparent about where their inputs and where their suppliers are. Um, Adidas has demonstrated that you can be competitive financially disclose who you're buying from, as well as begin mapping down your supply chain and not run the risk of negatively impacting the performance of the business. For us, I think that's a really strong example. The other is that you can take steps to remedy these abuses. You can make commitments to ensure that remedy is occurring if an abuse doesn't happen, and that's not going to significantly increase the economic viability of the corporation. We think that those are, in particular, really interesting and important areas for other companies who have yet to kind of fully embrace leadership to understand that you can be transparent, you can disclose additional information and not violate or put your company at risk from an intellectual property standpoint, which is a common argument against greater transparency. You talk about market cap, you talk about stock value and the like. Do shareholders care? There is, as I'm sure you know, a whole area of thinking that makes light of the idea of virtue investing at all. It says that the job of companies should be to enhance and maximize the value of their shares for shareholders. So the question is, do shareholders care? There's two different shareholders that we think do care about this information. Those are the, what we would call shareholder advocates. So we have a network of investors representing 3.5 trillion of assets under management that use our information to engage actively with the companies they hold. So active engagement with low scoring companies saying, we think you need to take these steps from an operational risk standpoint or a legal risk standpoint or a reputational risk standpoint. And all three of those risks do exist for companies as it relates to this issue. And so we do have a network of investors that pay attention to that. The other area of investors that is beginning to acknowledge the importance of companies having a strong supply chain and strong management and governance processes are those that look at long-term performance, right? That are not concerned about quarter-to-quarter financial statements, but understand about the underlying value of a business. And if you are really creating long-term value and stability, that is more important to them than quarter-over-quarter financial reporting. And those are the two audiences that do take up our information. It sends a strong signal when you have Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, coming out and saying, companies need to have a purpose in the world today. We really think that there is a moving tide toward investors understanding that it's not just about the bottom line. Well, the bottom line question, though, beyond the shareholder question is, does the buying public care? Have you seen an impact on the lowest scoring companies in your series of surveys? It doesn't seem to really have a direct correlation to sales. Does the buying public care? 
that is the $30 trillion question, right, <laughs> that the entire sector is really grappling with. Does a buying public care? And I think the way that we're best going to know that is retroactively seeing the emergence of more socially responsible brands. I think that's really going to shift the market. And that's when we're going to know, hey, consumers do favor this. Where we really see it impacting companies is from a reputational risk standpoint. Consumers saying that they care about ethical purchasing practices is, is distinctly different from them actually putting that into work. But I am optimistic um, when we have brands emerging like Outland Denim out of Australia and others that are doing it right, building responsibly and ensuring that the conditions in which they're producing are not just basic, but enhancing the quality of the lives of their workers. Once we see brands like that not only emerge, but begin to eat at some of these companies' market cap, I think that's where, what's going to really drive the change is then these leaders saying, okay, we need to either innovate or innovate by acquisition. And we need to acquire these companies and we need to make sure that their principles are baked into our entire organization. Yeah, the real proof will come when these companies do all those things that you just described at the same time making a profit that buyers really do pay attention and really do direct their spending toward those companies. And I guess that's not entirely the case now, but maybe we're seeing some movement. Yeah, I think we are. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from other sectors here. So the natural food movement that unarguably exists, particularly in the United States, that natural healthy food movement has really driven a generation of buyers, those that care about a brand that has an ethos and has a story. Uh, increasingly, people are want to buy brands that align with their personal view of themselves. Those brands that are showing up online, those brands like Outland Denim as well, once they kind of get to the tipping point, we could potentially see a significant shift in the market where these corporations do really see the value and have the, the financial backing to do so of purchasing or producing with their morals. Have you seen any instances of your actual reports having a direct impact on company behavior? Do you wake up every morning thinking that you've made a difference with these reports? That's a really good question. I mean, we're not in this just for producing reports, right? We want to create an objective evaluation criteria that we use to strengthen understanding of what is best practice in the field. And yeah, we've had a lot of conversations with corporations, both with us and then as well with consultants if the corporation doesn't want to talk to us. And ranging from the lowest scoring company to the highest scoring company, we hear consistently that, hey, this is helpful for us. It's helpful in many different ways, right? So it's helpful for the internal champion in a corporation that wants to get their company to move on these issues, but maybe they need a little outside pressure, a little outside validation of the fact that they are lagging behind. Or it's helpful for the leader that say, look, we just put X amount of money into this last year and my boss is asking me why we did it. And your report helps validate the fact that there is a reason for us to continue to move these issues forward. That gives us a good, strong sense, as well as kind of the progress that we're seeing from 2016 to 2018 with that cohort, with apparel as well as within food and ICT, that this work and this information is making some meaningful and demonstrable impact on these issues. Two and a half years ago, you told me we're at the end of the beginning. What would you tell me today? Uh, I'd say we're in the uh, the messy middle, uh, <laughs> progressing the conversation. We're not at a stage anymore where companies are ignoring these issues. When we first came out with our report, there was a number of companies that said, hey, this issue doesn't affect us. Why are you asking us? Who are you? We're here. We've demonstrated that we're not going anywhere. And really, the fun conversations begin now. Where we begin to start talking about 
okay, well, what is measurement? What are we asking the right questions? How do we improve this? Is that really a best practice? What do companies need to do to fundamentally address remedy issues? All those elements, I think, are are where we get to be now, Uh, whereas two and a half years ago, yeah, we were at the end of the beginning. Just the beginning of these companies understanding these issues affect them in some way, and now we're in the messy middle. Killian Mood, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show to explain the latest report from Know the Chain. We will eagerly await the next one to see where it all goes. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Bob. That was my conversation with Killian Moot of Know the Chain, talking about a new report on labor abuses in apparel and footwear supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.